This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey there, this is Diane. And this is Kelly from the History Goes Bump podcast. You have the chance of a lifetime to join us for a ghost hunt and a live show. And we're going to be doing it with one of your other favorite podcasts, Hillbilly Horror Stories. September 17th and 18th, we'll be doing a ghost hunt at the St. Augustine Lighthouse. We'll have a couple of special guests joining us as well for that. And on Saturday the 18th, we'll be having a live show. And during that live event, Kelly, we're going to be sharing about some Victorian houses that are haunted here in Central Florida. Looking forward to it. There'll be a meet and greet, a Q&A. It's going to be a great time. You do not want to miss this. For more information, go to historyghostbump.com and click on the St. Augustine Hunt tab and you'll find out how you can get tickets to both. Better do it soon, though. There's very few tickets left. See you there. Hey, guys. Welcome to episode 267 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, we have a unique show tonight. Okay. Uh, Obviously, a bunch of stuff that's going on right now. So we want to thank all of our military, civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Big prayers out to any of our forces uh, that are in Afghanistan. It's been a horrible week with uh, 13 yeah. deaths of our Marines. Uh, I've watched some interviews with uh, some of their parents, and it's just it's heartbreaking. Uh, it's, yeah, it's heartbreaking. So just uh, all of you out there, if you've got to deal with this, be safe. Uh, I want to give a special shout out to Daniel Newcomer, him and Tiffany. His wife are uh, listeners of the show, and they were supposed to be coming and having fun next month to the um, show we're doing down in St. Augustine with uh, Diana Kelly from History Goes Bump. But unfortunately, Daniel has been called to go over to Afghanistan. And uh, I just I feel for their family just because I guess we're a little closer to their situation. But uh, we just want you guys to know that we're, we're thinking about you. Yeah, we're praying for you guys and... Our condolences to all the fallen soldiers' families and everything. It's just, like I said, it's very heartbreaking. Um, and all we can do is pray and just, you know, pray that they get home and nothing else happens, which, you know, we can't predict the future, of course. But anyway, we have you all in our prayers and we thank you for fighting for us and for being our angels on earth. We love you all. Absolutely. Be safe out there and, and, uh, Bring our people home. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough time for a lot of people right now. It's a lot of stuff going on, everything from COVID to that, to uh, we've oh. got the hurricane. No, that's another thing we need to talk about. That's blasting right yeah. now in, uh, in 
the panhandle down there. Yeah. So, you know, our thoughts and prayers are out to anybody who is in the path of of Hurricane Ida. Yeah. God bless you guys. We're praying for y'all and hope it goes and comes quick. Just get out of there and, you know, just try to be safe if y'all stayed. So if, if you're struggling with stuff that's going on right now, maybe you're on in the path of, of Ida and, and it's you're just worried about things going to go on and you just want to talk to somebody, you know, we're here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group is there. Just use these things to your advantage. But above everything, just do not feel like that your concerns are a bother to somebody else because they're not. No, absolutely not. Your concerns are always valid. And, you know, please reach out to us. We all need somebody to talk to. And, you know, like Jerry said, you can reach out to the group or call Jerry and I any time of the day or night that you want to. Um, also, if you just want to call the 800 number, you can do that at 273-8255. Um, you can text them at 741-741. But you guys are not alone. We're here with you. All right. With all that being said... Let's see if we can try to take some people's minds off some stuff for a couple All right. Hours. Sounds good. All right. On this show, we got some cool stuff, but I want to bring this up. We have a special guest on this show. We always have special guests, but this one uh, I had a really good time with. His name is Sam Baltrusis, and I will, like I said, I guarantee that you guys have seen Sam somewhere. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, uh, and we'll get in, we'll get into a little bit of that. Uh, a little bit later before we get into it, but I mean, he's he's been on The Haunting. Mm-hmm. He's actually a producer on A Haunting now, know, which we cool? all know how I feel about that show. But he was on the hundredth episode, which is the most watched episode in that show's history. Isn't that great? And uh, so really cool. But he's also got a new deal coming up, and some of you have probably seen this breaking. And I posted this a little bit earlier. Uh, if you, anybody follows Dave Schrader, you've probably already seen this. But they've got a big special coming out called The Curse of Lizzie Borden on Discovery Plus on September 10th. Nice. Sam is actually part of this. It's funny because we don't, this hadn't been released yet when we did this interview a couple mm-hmm. of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So we didn't even talk about it in the interview. Uh-huh. But it's probably the biggest thing he's involved with right now. We didn't even talk about it because <laughs> I don't think it could be released yet yeah, at the time. So right. we, we didn't mention it. But yeah, so this is going to be fun. If you got Discovery Plus, you'll be able to see Sam. But Perfect. You, you've seen Sam on a bunch of stuff. We'll get into an interview, but I just want to tell people that it was, it's kind of a big get for us to, to, mm-hmm. to get it. He's extremely busy. He is an expert on all things Salem, Massachusetts, and that's what a lot of the interview is about. So yeah, We're very blessed to have him, that's for sure. We'll get to tonight's story after a quick sponsor. All right, so ever so often, I run across short stories that I kind of put to the side and uh, I think, you know, we'll, we'll either use these for a bonus episode on Patreon or I'll include it in an episode where we do a bunch of smaller stories mm-hmm. collectively together. And most of the time, these stories are kind of connected. You know, they might all three be poltergeist stories or they might all three be unsolved murders or past lives. That's a good yeah. example. There mm-hmm. might be past lives stories or something. Sometimes, though, like tonight, the stories are more just strange and unexplained and... That's kind of what I named the episode tonight, Strange and Unexplained. Hey, and it rhymes. It kind of don't. Oh, Strange Unexplained. (laughs) (laughs) In my head it did. (laughs) So I guess technically this is just my way of saying you're going to get a hodgepodge of different kinds of stories tonight. (laughs) Okay. All right, so we got several cases that we've talked about 
that have included spontaneous fires breaking out. And I don't mean spontaneous human combustion, not that kind, but fires that just randomly start in a house. It happened in the Sally house. Mm-hmm. They had a situation where it broke out in a nursery. There are 28 fires set in a house in Olden, Indiana back in 1940. Wow. So we've talked about that, not on the big show, but we talked about it on the, mm-hmm. one of the Patreon mm-hmm. shows. But that was a crazy situation back then. I know Justin Rimmel on Mysterious Circumstances has done a complete episode on that as well. We talked about eight fires set at the same time in the Dag home uh, during the Dag uh, hunting, which if you were in Louisville, you've heard that live. We've not done the actual show about it, but eventually we'll record that for the show after all the live events. That happened in the 1800s in Canada. So there's been a bunch of more other stories like that, mm-hmm. just these random fires. This story actually has some similarities, but also some things that are definitely set it apart from the other stories we've done. This took place over a five-year period, from 1958 to 1962 in London, England. The thing that really stands out, though, on this one, is that all of the incidents happened around Easter and no other time. What a weird time for that to happen. Right. So Graham and Vera Stringer, they lived in London with their baby son Stephen when all these events started. They started Easter week of 1958. A fire broke out in the living room. A bag of Stephen's toys caught on fire for no apparent reason when the family was sleeping. Luckily, they woke up and were able to come and put the fire out in the living room. Stephen was too young to start the fire, and his parents were asleep, and nobody else was in the house, so... This is going to be a dumb question. And I know you're going to say, oh, my God. No such thing as dumb questions. Only dumb people who ask questions. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) This is, I know, I don't even know why I'm going to say it. There were batteries back in the day, right? Yes, there were batteries. (laughs) Actually, that's not a dumb question. And to be honest with you, I hadn't thought about it. So I guess theoretically, if he had a battery-powered toy, Mm -hmm. then, yeah, maybe the batteries could start a fire. Yay for me. All right. And mm-hmm. I said the forties, but this was actually in the late fifties, but Oh, okay. I've mentioned the forties for the oh, okay. something else earlier and it threw me out. Just a thought. No, there you go. But I think you'll see as more things come that it's probably less, less likely. likely that, yeah. But if that was the only fire Then you might yeah. Then you could say that might actually be a pretty good deduction. All right. The next year, nineteen fifty nine, on Good Friday, Vera came home from a shopping trip. She finds Graham fighting a second fire in their bedroom. This time it was a box of presents from Vera's mother. Why does everybody hate holidays more? (laughs) But these burst into flames while Stephen and Graham were in the other room. That is so bizarre. I'm thinking maybe the, you know, window in the living room is made out of magnifying glass or something well i mean (laughs) what the heck man it's just like you don't want to have an easter basket i know it was just as toys but still you know and then this thing makes the presents catch on fire but this was on good friday well yeah so i mean it was still easter 
Oh, I don't want he was you to think it's Christmas. Easter. We was getting well. No, no. I heard you say that. I thought maybe it was getting like birthday presents or something. And we'll get into that. That might be a possibility. That's oh. a little bit where this ends up at. So regardless, they got the fire extinguished pretty quickly, but the presents were destroyed. Mm-hmm. So now let's jump to the day after Easter, the following year, 1960. Vera was doing some housework. She smelled something burning in the bedroom. The first two fires were in the living room. She's like, mother. <laughs> she runs in there and she finds a vest and a shirt that belonged to Graham on fire in the bedroom. Beside it was a chest of drawers or Chester drawers <laughs> that was badly scorched. So following this event, the family's fire insurance was canceled because of repetitive oh, oh claims. Oh, my gosh. I wonder what they filed a claim on. If, if it didn't do damage to, like, the floor or the carpet where you would have to file a claim. I mean... I mean, I don't know what... Ba- it was a bag of presents. Now, maybe it damaged the floor where they had to have some... I could have. The next year, 1961, there was no fire. What? But... That doesn't mean that there wasn't an incident. The family said that not once, but twice, they saw a gray column of fluorescent light. Their words. The column of light made its way through the apartment. During the time it was moving through the apartment, they could hear phantom footsteps. Closet and cabinet doors would open and close violently. So this was just like all happening at the same time. They later noticed that one of the occasions, a kitchen window had been broken out. Dang, man, this thing is destructive. Ninja is loud. I know, man. He's got his belly full. They concluded that they had been the victim of a poltergeist, and they named it Larry. Well, you know what? I think they should have named it Graham. Graham's... The husband. Why oh, not Graham. Graham. What's the kid's name? Stephen? Yeah. Seems a lot of things kind of... Yeah, but he was only like a year old at the time. Yeah, but it was his present, Easter, come on now, his toys. Well, they also concluded... He may have been a little bitch. <laughs> and he hadn't grown up to let him know yet, for sure. They also concluded that since there were no fires at this time, that the poltergeist activity was pretty much finished. You said they named him Larry? Yeah. All right, cool. They would be wrong, though. Mm, the like- activity was not finished. Oh, I was going to say you didn't like that name. Because the following year in 1962, on Easter, a fire broke out in the living room for the third time. It's the Easter Bunny. The fire was more serious this time, though, than the others. The fire department actually had to be called. The flames were put out by the fire department, but a second fire broke out in Stephen's room as they were cleaning up the mess from the first no fire. No way. Luckily, little Stephen was not in the room and there was not much damage. Now, this was the last appearance. Because he's the cause of it all. Of Larry to the strange family. You do not know that. I do know this. I just have a feeling. This is funny that he wasn't in the room when the fire started. Uh-huh. All right, so. Maybe he opened his presents before. He, he opened his presents and looked and he didn't like what he got. So he set him on fire. He was not in the room. He was in the he was in the room with his father when the fire broke out. But he might. Oh, okay, never mind. 
All right. So there's, I'll be honest with you, there's not a ton of information on this case that I could find. But I do have some thoughts. First of all, poltergeist cases usually happen over a period of a few weeks to a few months, sometimes over a year. But that's continuous activity. Oh, it's not, not one just time, one time a, year. a year. Yeah, that is kind of weird. So that's extremely years, especially as weird over a five-year period, mm-hmm. especially. Now, could this be that the husband slash father Graham maybe had some type of trauma associated with Easter? And this could be why that things were happening around Easter. Maybe it was poltergeist. Maybe he was the issue. Hmm. And it was happening that way. What about Vera? Could she have had some kind of trauma dealing with Easter? Or was little Stephen, because I couldn't find this, maybe his birthday was somewhere around Easter. Maybe she had a really hard birth. Maybe she almost died during childbirth or something. And it was very traumatic for her. So when his birthday came up, which happened to be around Easter... Maybe that's where the trauma came from. And I say that because on that second year, there was a box of presents from her mom. Were the presents for her? Were the presents for Stephen? Because it was his birthday. Most people don't give presents for Easter. Well, maybe mom was just jealous because she didn't get that attention when she was a little kid. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. You know, maybe she was like, what mom buy him presents for? I mean, he ain't nobody. I didn't get presents at Easter. I don't know. I just know that there's. it's all speculation because nobody knows, but they, there never was an answer to what anybody thought. Well, Easter is a glorious day. I don't know why all those bad things happened. It's terrible. I don't know. But the I'll, Easter bunny. But it only happened for five years and then it was done. Yeah, but, but and that's weird. What was the column of light that was going through that? Yeah, house? that's true. I don't know what that is. Maybe it was the... Pat the Easter Bunny took. If you don't get off the Easter Bunny's nuts. <laughs> All right. I love the Easter Bunny. This next story is also from the same time period, but it's in Long Island, New York. So we're going to cross the pond and go away from Great Britain and back over to the States. To New York. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually heard this story a few times on some other podcasts, and I've watched a few YouTube videos on it, and I kept saying I was going to do this at one time or another, and it's never really seemed to fit. So today is the day. And it fits. <laughs> it's going to fit today. We're forced it to. February 3rd, 1958, approximately 3.30 p.m., Lucille Herman was startled by a succession of popping sounds. Like bubble wrap. I'm just kidding. Well, maybe it's probably what it sounded like. These popping sounds were coming from throughout the house. She and her two children, which was 13-year-old Lucille and 12-year-old Jimmy, they started to investigate, and they found that in almost every room of the house, there were all kinds of bottles that had spontaneously (gasps) popped open. For example, there was a shampoo bottle open and pouring all over the floor in the bathroom. In the kitchen, there was an open bottle of bleach. In the cellar, there was an open bottle of liquid starch. And in the bedroom, a bottle of holy water was unstopped. <laughs> I just other, type nothing. Other than the holy water, all these bottles had screw-on caps. No corks or push-on tops. 
What that is crazy. Also, none of the bottles contained any carbonated or fermentable liquid. Right. What for the pressure that for would the make pressure. them bubble. Okay. Bingo. We're gonna fast forward three days later. Six more bottles open, spilling their contents. The next two days saw more open bottles. James Herman, Lucille's husband, he called the police because, you know, that's what you do. When I you mean, what are they going to do about it? Off. Yeah. <laughs> popping their lids off. <laughs> <laughs> he hates these bottles. <laughs> so Jay Hughes was the first uh, officer on the scene. It was Patrolman Jay Hughes. He starts to question the family. When guess what? The sound of popping bottles came from the bathroom. Oh, well, that's kind of good then. So the police department assigns Detective Joseph Tawsey to the case. I bet he was thrilled. Yeah. Yeah, you're working that popping bottle case. (laughs) (laughs) So Detective Tawsey reported that other items were starting to move. He personally saw a porcelain figure float through the air. He also witnessed a sugar bowl rise off of the dining room table and smash against the wall. Well, I mean, I'm sure he was scared to death, but at least those things were happening. The family didn't look, you know, crazy or something. On another occasion, when the entire family was actually upstairs, a heavy bookcase overturned and fell over in a room downstairs. Let's see, that's just getting messy. I put all those books up. You don't know that there was books in it. Oh, well, I assume it was since you said it was a bookshelf. I guess I was just assuming there were books. <laughs> Mr. Herman tried his best to keep his composure. He told uh, about one instance that he had, and this is actually his words. He said, at about 10.30 a.m., I was, I was standing at the doorway of the bathroom. All of a sudden, two bottles, which had been placed on the top of the vanity table, began to move. One moved straight ahead, slowly while the other spun to the right for a 45-degree angle. The first one fell into the sink. The second one crashed to the floor. Both bottles moved at the exact same time. Yeah. So overall, the Hermans recorded 68 events that happened in their house. 23 of them involved bottles. Police had all sorts of theories, everything from high-frequency radio waves to sonic booms caused by uh, aircraft that were from nearby JFK Airport. Okay, that's dumb. Then other people would complain, wouldn't they? Right. So they they thought that that's what was causing the bottles to pop, though, was just the Mm takeoffs landing. mm -hmm. They even placed a device down in the basement to kind of measure and, and detect tremors, and nothing showed up on the meters. They checked all the electrical circuits. Nothing faulty was discovered. And after a month, the strange disturbances, everything just stopped. So it moved on to another house to destroy it. (laughs) The case did attract the attention of Parapsychologist Laboratory at Duke University, especially the director, J.B. Ryan. He sent two colleagues down there, one of which was W.G. Rowe, who we've actually talked about uh, a few times on the show. If you remember the Tina Resch, mm-hmm. the Columbus poltergeist, where the phone stood, the thing stood straight out, yeah, the yeah. cord and all that. He was the one that went down there for that. He's also the one that came up with the term RSPK, which is for psychokinesis. 
So he actually came up with that term himself and penned it. So pretty well known, been around forever. There was also a Dr. J. Gaither Pratt that he was also there. So those two come down there to see what's going on. Here's why they took interest. They had noticed through all the reports that they were reading that all the events only took place when 12-year-old Jimmy was in the house. So they wanted to go down there and check it out, thinking he may be the cause of the poltergeist. Now, the police felt like they might just be childhood pranks. But Roland Pratt felt that Jimmy was the cause, but not purposely, like the investigators thought. They thought that it was definitely paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. Now, Detective Tulsi, he actually tried to get the boy to confess at one point, and... I don't know if he put those lights on his face and all that. <laughs> I doubt it. But he did try to get him to confess. Jimmy never did confess, though. This really didn't make much sense to me because there were several different times when this happened when the whole family was together, like the time when the bookcase fell over. They yeah. were upstairs with right. the police officer. Well, right. Yeah, well, well, that's kind of weird. So, I don't I know. I wonder why they just picked him out of the whole bunch. I don't know. And then the father, remember, there was the part where the fa- father saw the two bottles move in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Jimmy wasn't around then. Yeah. Yep. So, anyways. Unfortunately, Pratt and Roe didn't get to observe much because by the time that they had gotten wind of it and got down there, the activity had pretty much just stopped. And uh, Pratt said that he felt like, for sure, that Jimmy was the source of the poltergeist activity, no matter what. He just thought he was the source, but they didn't have any way to prove it. Yeah. Well, you don't be saying that if you ain't got no proof. Well, but it's probably a good you know, thesis based on everything he's got going on. That's that's usually what happens in these poltergeist cases. He's in the house the whole time. He doesn't have to be in the same room. Mm -hmm. He's 12 years old. He's right near that puberty age, and that's when these things typically happen. Hmm. So, anyways. Don't know about that. This story here is a short one. I actually wrote here that this is the last story, but it's not. I found found another one I liked afterwards. (laughs) It's very short. It was on the news in Michigan. This was a few years ago. It was in Highland, Michigan, to be exact. And the last names were not given because it involves a young couple and and a child. His name was Josh. Her name was Heather. And then he had a 15-month-old daughter named Lily. I'm glad you didn't mention their names. I didn't mention their last name. Mm -hmm. There could be all kinds of Heather Joshes and Lilies running around in Highland, Indiana. Okay. Or Highland, Michigan, sorry. <laughs> See, I'm trying to mix it up. I know, you're trying to throw them off. <laughs> they, live, they live in this two-story house that sort of looked like a, a barn type. It was kind of a... Yeah, now I'm really making it more specific. So, you know what Heather, Josh, oh, and Jesus, Lily live John. in a barn house? Anyways, the main incident involves some footage from a nanny cam. I've seen the footage. It's pretty cool. It would seem that something was always coming to the baby's room and catching the baby's attention. Mm-hmm. On one particular night, there is this type of ghostly image that walks past the crib. When it does, the baby obviously sees it, and it, and the baby's kind of, I guess, sitting down or laying down. But the baby stands up and grabs on to the rails of the crib 
and watches right after the thing passes. Mm-hmm. And is the baby smiling? You can't tell it's from the back. Oh. Heather sees it. I on bet the she, camera. Oh my gosh, she must have hightailed it in there so fast. Yeah. Well, Josh sees they both see it. Josh sees it. He says that it's in a chill chill down his spine. And it, it was one of those that I just really see what I think I just saw. Mm-hmm. Well, Heather immediately ran upstairs and she grabbed the baby. Heather said that when the entity apparently came by, it scratched the baby and it's attacked her as well. She said one morning she felt like someone had put its hands, someone, I guess, or something, had put its hands around her neck and was choking her. So the family invited a group of paranormal investigators to come check the place out. And what they did with some research was found out that there was a previous resident who committed suicide by jumping out the second story window. The family isn't exactly sure why the ghost would be targeting their family, but they were going to have to stay there for a while until they could save up the money to move. And the thing of it is, and and I'm not saying this don't happen because, you know, people can get killed from the slightest things, if, if, if you hit just right or something. But right. I don't know who's jumping out of a second-story window to commit suicide. A lot of people have jumped out of second-story windows and land on their feet and yeah. maybe just get a broken bone. And like I said, I'm not saying that it can't happen because I know it can. I just find it odd that somebody jumped out of a second-story window to commit suicide. I find it odd is why she has her baby on the second floor and they're on the first they're, floor. No, they're on, they're on the uh, second floor, too. Oh, you said she ran up the stairs. Oh, no, I guess you're right. I yeah. guess you're right. So that's not cool. Well, I, think, I guess opinion. the bedroom, well, they got a nanny cam. Like, it they, doesn't matter. Well, I mean, what what do you think is going to happen upstairs? Because if they're upstairs, say if a fire broke out or something, they can grab the kid, jump out the window. This way they can. They got to go all the way upstairs. Their bedroom, the, their bedroom is upstairs also. They were downstairs in the living room. The kid was asleep upstairs. Oh, okay. Well, that's fine then. I thought you meant their bedroom was downstairs and she was the baby was upstairs. No. All right, cool. All right. Forgive me. All right. This is the last one. This one actually, I I was going to use this for the police encounter episode we did. And let me let me say this too, by the way. And I'm sure it's a coincidence. I'm not saying anybody's taken from us or because none of this stuff is ours. Yeah. You know all these stories. But since we've done a couple of these police encounter episodes, I'm seeing them everywhere. <laughs> I've seen literally, and I'm not talking about old stuff. I'm talking new stuff. Mm-hmm. But I've seen two or three different podcasts done. I've seen two or three YouTube videos. And I saw a story that was in a uh, like a paranormal magazine or something. Mm-hmm. And they've all been on police encounters. And they've all been since we've done our two episodes. That, well, you know, people might find that interesting. I find it interesting. They probably just... I just thought it was a coincidence. Right. And it it probably was, but, you know. Because we'd been talking about doing doing them forever. Right, And then we finally did do them, and then all of a sudden, all these other ones were popping up. Yeah. Well, I think it's cool, because those uh, those police ones are pretty interesting. This was one that I was going to do last month, and I decided to leave it off. And now I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and put it back on. So it takes place in Hawaii at a place called uh, Pali Lookout. One of the things that District 5 Police Department there has to do is they have to lock up the gates at a place called Pally Lookout. It's like a state park. Mm -hmm. It might be a a national park, but it's a park nonetheless. 
there's two different gates that they have to lock in two different locations. So get a lock one, drive to the other. Most police officers there apparently do not like to handle this task because it gets very dark at both of these places. Oh, yeah, I wouldn't be down for that either. On this particular night, the job was given to a rookie. She goes up to the first gate. She closes it. She locks it. She gets back in her car, and she starts driving towards the second gate. She's barely gotten any distance at all, and she notices a white figure up ahead. Now, she immediately remembers stories that she's been told by other officers about accidents that they've had after riding past a white figure. Oh, dang. As she gets closer, it appears to be a lady in a white dress. She gets close to where this lady is. She starts to roll down her window to make sure that the woman's all right. As soon as she starts to roll the window down, she gets an eerie feeling. She looks in her rearview mirror, and the lady is sitting in the backseat of her car. No. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) She got broken right. This officer said that her grandmother had always told her that if you ever encounter any type of spirit, to stay calm and talk to the spirit. Oh, good advice. So she continues to drive towards the other gate. She's having a conversation with the woman in the back seat. At least she's talking. Mm -hmm. The lady, the the spirit's not doing much talking. Oh my God, I wonder what she was saying. Well, she's asking her if, if she's okay, but she gets no response. She... Arrives at the second gate. She gets out of the car and she tells the spirit that she just has to go lock the gate. She's just doing her job and she'll be right back. She gets back in the car. She sees the spirit is still in the back seat looking down. Just like sad mood. She just needs a hug. Upon entering the car, she tells the spirit that she doesn't have anything to offer her. She's sorry. She's just doing her job. And she's locking the gates. She tells her that she has to drive through the tunnel. And that's as far as she can actually take her. Because then she would be out of her her jurisdiction and district if she went any further. Hmm. So the whole time this lady in the back seat is just looking down. She said as she drives through the tunnel, she felt this overwhelming sense of peace. She looked back and the lady was gone. Oh my gosh. I love that story. And look how calm she was. And thank goodness she listened to her grandma. And that story actually was recorded by the the police department there in Hawaii. They recorded that story and gave that to the news to use right around Halloween time. Just as, But they the, the police department recorded that story by themselves. That's very cool. I like that. Yep, so fun. we all need to just remember to be cool and calm and... I'm always cool and calm. Have a combo. Like, hey, man, how's it been hanging? <laughs> yeah. How long think, have you been roaming the earth for a hundred years? I don't think if you run into a woman spirit, you ask how it's hanging. Well, her boobs could be hanging pretty low. All right, we're going to take a short break from our sponsor, and uh, we'll be back to talk about uh, a bunch of stuff. All right. So real quick before we get into the iTunes and such, uh, just a quick reminder 
that we have canceled the Galveston show, unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances. We hate that. We're still going to go to Galveston. We're just not going to be having the show. So if anybody's going to be in the area, yeah, we want to say hi. We'll be down there a couple of days. Yeah, that'd be cool to meet up with some peeps. Yes, the Dallas show is still on. The Memphis show. If you guys, uh, I want to make sure that you're clear on how the Memphis deal is going to work. We're basically just going to have dinner and tell you a story. It's not going to be set up like a regular show. Like we're going to tell you a story past. at the dinner table. Dinner table. Dinner table. Yes. Like we're all going to sit at the dinner table eating. Yes, it and, is a private dinner. And you're going to tell a story? Yeah, I don't even know if we'll have, because cause there's probably only going to be 10 or so people there. Yeah. We're just going to sit down, and we'll eat, and then we'll tell a story, and we'll just have fun. It's literally just going to be sitting at a table, having dinner, and talking. Don't that sound amazing? It does. I'll be glad. And the only reason we're charging $10 for that is because we have to pay $100 for the room mm-hmm. for it to be a private room, and yeah. we're just trying to get enough money to pay the room. Yeah. So... Other than that, it's just a giant meet and greet. Yay. So if you're going to be in Memphis that Tuesday the 15th, I think is what it mm-hmm. is. Um, no, I think no. it's Tuesday the 12th. 12th, yeah. Tuesday, October 12th. Come see us. It'll be fun. For Rizal. Anyways. Uh, and then, obviously, we got Bobby Mackey still going on. And the closest one, just a couple of weeks away, we've got, I think, six tickets left. And we've got some tickets for the um, investigation of the St. Augustine Lighthouse. So we would love for you guys to come out and see us, and uh, let's have some fun, and let's get our ghost on. Ooh. On the beach. Get our ghost on, on the beach. On the beach. Hell yeah. All right, Tracy, what you got going on over there? Well, first of all, I would like to say that we attended a beautiful wedding yesterday of our good friends, Andy and Desiree. So happy marriage to you guys. Yes, I got to actually perform that ceremony. It was very... A very touching ceremony. It was very cool. And also, today is my handsome son's birthday. Happy birthday, Joshua. I love you so much. And then I'm going to read you the iTunes. We had the Gickle. I hope I said that right. (laughs) (laughs) Mojo Lobster. (laughs) Beth R. from Green Bay. And Handsome Mike. Thank you guys for your awesome reviews. We appreciate it. And that's about all I got for you, doll. Yeah, we don't have any new Patreons this week. But just a reminder, if you want to get um, commercial-free shows, because somebody left a review saying that they love the show, but they hate, they know we got to make a living, but they hate that there's so many commercials because it really takes them out of their mood. Sorry. You know what takes us out of our mood? Not paying our bills. <laughs> that really takes us out of our mood, so. But but they, <laughs> they gave us a very nice review, and right. we appreciate that. Look, we totally get the ads. We understand that totally. But, but that's why that's why we made commercial-free ads at the lowest level on Patreon. Mm-hmm. For a dollar a month, you can get rid of every single commercial. Yeah. So, But we love you guys you know. so much. Thank you all so much for your nice reviews. They always make me smile. And I, like I told you, I just look forward to reading them all the time. And we appreciate you all that you take the time out to do that for us. Absolutely. All right. Are you guys ready to hear... Sam Baltrusis. Sam, I am. Watch and see. As soon as you hear his voice, if you don't think you know who he is, as soon as you hear his voice, you're going to be like, I know who that is. Because <laughs> he just has a very distinguishable yeah, voice. Yeah. So. All right, guys. Let's listen to Sam. Hey, guys. I'm really excited about this one. I've got a very special guest on. I've got Sam Baltrusis. And if you, if you think I know that name from somewhere, you probably do because... 
you've probably seen him on almost every paranormal show it seems like out there because he's been on Destination America. He's been on the, the Bio Channel, the Travel Channel, and numerous uh, radio shows. I've, I've listened to him on Dave Schrader's shows, and he's been everywhere because he is the expert when it comes to Salem, Massachusetts. Sam, thanks so much for, for giving us some time tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. So, Sam, let's let's jump in. I mean, you're you're an author, first and foremost. You've written, I want to say, 11 or 12 books, included uh, Wicked Salem, uh, Ghost Rider, several others. What got you into writing uh, about ghosts for the most part? That's what most of your books about. They're real life type hauntings that are factual based as much as it can be. What got you started doing that? Well, Jerry, I was a journalist for about 20 years before writing books. And so I I wrote a story back in 2011 uh, on haunted hotspots in Boston. And it was a huge hit. People loved it. They also loved the fact that I went to all those locations and kind of checked them out and sort of like kind of sort of investigated throughout the process. And that turned into my first book deal, which was called Ghost of Boston. At the time, I was more, I would say, trying to present myself as a skeptic because I wanted, I wanted uh, that journalistic credibility that I've had. And I, you know, I spent years building up that credibility. And when I wrote my first book, you, you can, you'll see the words like alleged, like the alleged haunting or, uh, you know, like the supposed haunting. And then as I progressed in the more and more experiences I had in the field reporting on the, on the spirits, it becomes, it's more not, seeing alleged, but it's more seeing that it actually, I did, people did encounter these ghosts. So you'll notice sort of a transition from my first book to now my 13th book, which is Ghosts of the American Revolution, which is coming out November 1st. Nice, nice. Obviously, you have a lot of knowledge, especially up in your area. You were on an episode of A Haunting on, on the Travel Channel, and I've made it clear on this show several times, to me, that is the best paranormal show out there, bar none. And you were on the 100th episode, and that episode is the most watched episode of all time of a haunting. First of all, what do you think made that episode so popular? If I remember correctly, the episode was Provoking Eagle, uh, Evil, a Cautionary Tale. Tell everybody if they haven't heard that uh, or seen this episode a little bit about what that case involved and why do you think that episode is so popular? I think it was so popular because it, first of all, it was Salem, Massachusetts. And to give you some idea, it was, a, it was the night before Halloween in 20, 2016. Uh, I was giving a lecture at a beautiful mansion in, in Topsfield called Pierce Farm at Witch Hills. And I was giving a lecture and I ended up getting an attachment that nearly killed me. I think it did so well because A, because there was sort of like the Halloween theme to it. We're at a Halloween party when this happened. And also the fact that it was, it deviated from the typical a haunting formula. So a haunting usually, which got got its start with a haunting in Connecticut way back in the day with uh, with John Zaffis and Ed and Lorraine Warren, and it turned into a series. Uh, but it's usually a, a haunted house. And this was not a haunted house. This was a haunted person. So I think the fact that it was something different, it had the Salem ties, it had the Halloween ties, and it kind of made it an extra special episode. And it, it definitely was one that stands out. So I'll give it that. And, and I've heard you say before, and I've only heard this one other time. Stephen Lancaster, he did had an episode of A Haunting that was about Norman the Doll. And he told me that 
it was very close to what really happened. They didn't take a lot of liberties with the story. They pretty much showed exactly what happened. And I've heard you say that the episode that you were in was pretty much the same way, which doesn't happen a lot when it comes to television, period, no matter what the genre is. So is that is that the case? Do you feel like that they did it the, the story justice? Yeah. As someone who has been on the show and someone who now works as a producer on the show, I have to say it is one of the most factual paranormal shows that I've seen on television. When it comes to my episode of A Haunting, for the most part, it was... A, very accurate. They changed some parts of the narrative. There was one situation where my friend Joni Mahan, who's my current co-host on Paranormal Rewind, comes banging on my door trying to help me. And the reality is she actually messaged me on social media. So there wasn't that interaction. I will say the interaction uh, on the show was pretty uh, scary. Uh, And and exactly like I said on the messenger was what the character said in the recreation. So the heart of the story was accurate, except for some minor changes for, for TV. So I was very happy with what they did. And the reason why is because they spent months and months going over the story with me. Uh, we talked, I talked to producers, they strive for accuracy and they also strive for historical accuracy because we were talking about actual people, the Richard Crowninshield who murdered a man, Captain Joseph White in 1830. So getting those facts correct were extremely important to me. You mentioned it, so we will cover it now. You're actually a producer for the show now as well. Yeah, so it's funny how fate works. So I was on the 100th episode. I really connected strongly with the the cast and crew and the producers. And I've been friends with other producers on other shows. And it turns out one of my good friends who was a producer on a show I worked on called Most Terrifying Places, her name is Laura Marini, joined A Haunting. She's now the showrunner for the show. She had an opening for an associate producer and asked if I could join the team. And I said, "I, I would love to you. It's my favorite show. So I am now working with a great team and I am, I've been a producer on the show since June 1st. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear it. It's only going to make the show that much better. I appreciate your uh, effort into the show. We got to talk Salem, obviously. And uh, let me ask you, do you ever get tired of talking Salem? Honestly, (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I, I have, I go through times where I need a break, a Salem break. Uh, I was just back in Salem this past weekend with Ryan Buell from Paranormal States. Uh, we did we did a, um, a weekend adventure at some of my favorite locations, including uh, the Hawthorne Hotel and Old Town Hall. So we first went to the U.S. of Salem and Quincy, Mass. And then we spent the uh, Saturday and Sunday at Old Town Hall and the Hawthorne Hotel where we had a, a seance. And I fell in love with Salem again. There was something about the city, especially Especially during the off season, that you know that I that I love and and I just I, I was went back to some of the old haunts. I, you know, I was giving tours in Salem for about ten years and kind of lost the passion. And I'm glad that I refound it and, and re- fell in love with the Witch City again. Well, here's what I want to do for somebody that's an expert in the area. I have never been to Salem. I keep saying that I'm going there next year, but I've said that the last three years. It's just so far away from me. But I'm definitely going. So for our listeners that have never been to Salem, give me a few places that are must-see places. Now, I mean, I, I know there's some of like the Hawthorne that, that everybody knows about, but give me some that maybe are off the beaten path that you would definitely say you got to check out when you're there, especially from the paranormal side. Well, I... 
I'm the type of person when I give my tours, I actually like to show off the places that aren't on the other tours and then sort of the different places. So the the one place that we, we brought the group this weekend was the House of the Seven Gables. That's where Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, it was inspired to write his book, The House of Seven Gables. It's mm-hmm. also where Nathaniel Hawthorne's birthplace was moved to. So there's a whole campus of very haunted and very historic houses on this property facing Salem Harbor. And it's absolutely beautiful. The gardens in the summer are just to die for. So it's a little different than what I'm used to, but there's the Witch Trials Memorial, which is right next to that. And that's definitely something that everyone should go to when they're uh, when they're doing Salem. There's also the Howard Street Cemetery, which is on a hill. And that's where Giles Corey was pressed to death over a two-day period. So a lot a lot of locations that are not usually on the tours that I, I send people to. What is your favorite Salem story? If you if I had to just hold you down and say, tell me one story that just it still captivates you to this day, what would that story be? Well, you know, Jerry, I've been telling the the ghost lore of Salem for years as a tour guide. And then the stories that I've had actually the ones that are the, the, the most fascinating to me because some of them actually tie into the stories that I've told. There's one photo that was shot on my tour two years ago, and it was in November, uh, of what looks like a lady wearing a blue dress right outside of Rockefeller's, which is on the corner of Washington and Essex Street. And that's a story that we've told over and over again as tour guides of a woman who was pregnant. She was waiting for her lover, who was a sailor, to tell him to tell him that she was actually expecting. And according to the legend, he flips and he murders her and buries her in a shallow grave beneath Rockefellers. There were tunnels beneath the, the building or the Daniel Lowe building. And I have a photo of what looks like a woman from the 1800s wearing a blue dress that is inexplicable and it's terrifying. The lady in the blue dress is something that that really interests me. I've also had a face-to-face encounter with a man wearing a hat and red glowing eyes right next to that, which was a, the bookstore right on Essex Street. I was working at a hotel in Salem, and I'm not going to name the name of the hotel, but I stayed there again this past weekend, and I was working the overnight shift. I heard a loud banging noise. I go outside, and I make I make eye contact with a man wearing a hat and red glowing eyes, and I was just frozen in fear looking at this man. It was like an inhuman watcher looking at me, and I, I that's something I will never forget, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so scared uh, to spend an overnight in Salem. I, I'll go there to work, but I won't live there. There's a lot of speculation on what happened during the witch trials, what caused uh, everybody to get in such an uproar, and I know I've kind of go by the philosophy of the, uh, what was it, the fungus and the in the weed or, or whatever the situation was that. Yeah, or got. <laughs> but what is, what is your thought on what happened? So 20 innocent men and women were executed for witchcraft in 1692. One of those was pressed to death, Giles Corey. Something that I found out two years ago, Jerry, that shocked the heck out of me. I'm related to the bad guys. So I'm actually related to the Putnam family who were the major accusers during the Salem witch trials. So you had a group of girls, they were known as the afflicted girls who would accuse innocent men and women of witchcraft. And those people were brought into a trial. And if they pled innocent, they were likely hanged for witchcraft. And if they pled guilty, they were kept in a really horrific dungeon. So 
those afflicted girls were kind of running the town. And I feel like if you look at my family, specifically the Putnams, Ann Putnam Jr. was the daughter of Thomas Putnam, who was the constable. He was like the, the man who uh, was responsible for the property. I think certain families were targeted because of either family feuds, because of money, because of past misdeeds. And I think some people were accused because they were obvious targets. They were like low-lying fruit, like Bridget Bishop, who was kind of known for wearing um, lacy garb and kind of sexualized and like did things that defied the status quo. And they called her a witch. So it, it was a storm of different uh, things that, that I feel like were responsible for the witch trials. But I think that if you really look at it, it was definitely a hysteria. And my, you know, my cousin, Ann Putnam Jr., was the only one to actually apologize after the witch trials. But for the most part, it was a, a scourge on the land. And it's something that repeats itself over and over again throughout history. What's your thoughts on the Joshua Ward House? So the Joshua Ward House actually is now a hotel. And for many years, it was a vacant building that, that looked very haunted. I remember giving tours about 10 years ago and going up on the property because it was vacant. There was no reason to really be scared. There was no one in there, you know, like walking on the tour and getting stra- scratched on my chest. So I do think that there, there was something there, especially when it was vacant. They have turned it into what is called the merchant, which is a kind of like a posh a bed and breakfast in the middle of Salem. And I think that if you ask them, they're going to say, oh, there's no hauntings. But the ghosts don't go anywhere. They're, they're still there. So I, I do think it's still haunted. I just don't think that because it was a vacant building before, I think it was more it was more active. And maybe the spirits went elsewhere. Maybe they went to the bookstore where I saw the, the shadow man. <laughs> but but yeah, so it, it was considered the most haunted house in the country for many years because it was vacant and terrifying. And that actually, you you kind of led me right into my next story. I was going to ask you about the bookstore. Is it called, is it Wicked Good Books? Yeah, so Wicked Good Books is really like pretty much every location in Salem has a ghost story associated with it. But Wicked Good Books is where I spotted the man wearing the hat. And it's a shop right on Derby Square and it is facing Essex Street. So that's the heart of Salem, like the main drag in Salem. You know, do I think it's a haunted bookstore? Yes and no. If you go downstairs, I've, I've been, I'm friends with the owners and I've been downstairs many times. People have reported feeling like a choking sensation when they go downstairs. I, I, um, I think that pretty much anywhere you go in Salem, you're going to have a ghost story. And I, I think the, the bookstore is, is no exception. Do you think Salem is over commercialized or do you think it was bound to happen just with the fascination with the witch trials? I think that Salem is, uh, when I first wrote my book, Ghost of Salem, I actually didn't want to write it. I'm like, it's been so, it's so overdone. Uh, I was happy writing books on Boston and other locations that have not been in the mainstream, but really there wasn't a lot of uh, ghost books. So my book, Ghost of Salem, actually is still my bestseller. Uh, I think that there's the surface of Salem, which is sort of like uh, witchy related stuff and witch shops and weekend witches and, you know, like and all that. And there's the, the truth and the truth is bubbling beneath the surface. And there's a darkness there that you can only get if you spend an extended time in Salem. So I think that there's the, the commercial Halloween town facade. And then there's the what's really going on, which is a darkness. There's bloodstains on the land. And, and as someone sensitive to the paranormal or sensitive to spirits, you're going to feel that darkness. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm, I'm trying to go back to when we did this story about three years ago on, on the Salem witch trials. But 
that most of the stuff that actually went on did that didn't happen right there on those premises. It was a little further up the road in like old Salem, or am I wrong on that? Well, so that that's that's another misconception. So the Salem was actually a much larger in 1692. So you had what is modern day Danvers, you had modern day Peabody, modern day Topsfield. So Salem was like Salem town where it's modern, like where we we go to, to Salem now, that, that was considered Salem town. Salem village is where my, my relatives lived, the Putnams, and that's where Rebecca Nurse lived. So Danvers is where the actual witch hunt took place. So the initial affliction of Betty Paris and Tichaba and, uh, and Abigail Williams and Ann Putnam Jr. happened in what is Danvers. However, a lot did happen in Salem town too. So it, it was all over really, but the people that were accused did not live in what we consider Salem now, except for there was actually a three people, Alice Parker, uh, Ann Puditor, and another person, I forget who that was also from actual downtown Salem. It's just amazing how much knowledge you have on this. I can't tell you how many videos I've seen of you on the news or you doing a, a radio show. It's just like, you just have every, it's just like you couldn't stump you, I don't think, if you tried, if it comes to anything to do with that area. So it's amazing your uh, amount of knowledge you have there. So that's why I was so fascinated to talk with you, because I knew anything that I had that might be iffy that you would be able to set me straight on. So that's pretty <laughs> awesome. And, you know, it's, it's funny you said this about the book earlier. There are certain things that do in this show that I have not been fascinated with and actually put off doing episodes on. And then after I did the episodes, I've become enthralled because it was so much more fascinating than I thought. And Gettysburg was the was first, and the Salem Witch Trials was the other. I was so amazed once I got into all the nuances and all the details of the Salem Witch Trials and everything that went on. And like you said, the Giles Corys and, and, and how all that took place. And I mean, just he was a ballsy dude, man, to just sit there and just tell somebody <laughs> just more weight. Keep going. You know, you got to respect that because that that was a time where people were just caving left and right due to the torture that was being put on them. You know, you, uh, you mentioned what's her name? Tichaba. I mean, she just started letting everything. Oh, I did this and I did that. And, and you know, none of it happened. But I mean, at some point you just break somebody. And that's what was happening. Yeah, I think what's with Tichaba specifically, it was co coerced testimony. She was one of the first women to be brought in. She found out like by pointing her fingers to other people and creating stories that she got more time. So it was actually very smart of her and she survived because of it. But she also ended up accusing a lot of other innocent people of witchcraft during that time. But if you look at her testimony, she starts off kind of denying things. And then as it progresses, she starts pointing fingers. So I do feel strongly that Tichaba was in self-preservation mode and was creating things to to hopefully to, to survive. And, and guess what she did? She was the first to be brought in the dungeon and the last to leave, actually. The 20 that died, is that counting the ones that, that died due to the harsh weather conditions and stuff to while they were being held? There were three people that we know of, but there were every life that was, every person that was in the dungeon, which was more than a hundred people, 
had lingering effects, health effects, lingering mental effects. There was Lydia Dustin who died in the, in the dungeon. There was a child, an unborn child of uh, Sarah Good, who was the town beggar woman. She lost her child and that was considered one of the deaths too. Uh, so there were people that died in the dungeons. Also speaking of the mental strain, so Sarah Good had a daughter named Dorothy and she was a young child who ended up being brought in for questioning and accusing her own mother of being a witch. Uh, they asked her, does your mom have any pet animals and she's like well my mommy has a snake and they said that that was Sarah Good's familiar. Now, Sarah Good would go from door to door begging for food. Actually came from a pretty prominent family, but she was desperate to protect her unborn child and her daughter, Dorothy. And the little girl actually ended up having a, kind of like a nervous breakdown in the dungeons. That's sad. I just Do you ever just look back and say, it's amazing the thought process that went into just, you know, anything goes wrong. Well, it's got to be witchcraft. We look at it now and just think, my gosh, how could anybody think some of these things? It's just mind boggling that anybody could have been that naive or that hooked on on their religious beliefs that they would just turn on somebody like they did. I'm actually not so surprised because I've seen it happen over and over again throughout history. So history does repeat itself. Coming from a family who were the major accusers, my cousin Ann Putnam Jr. accused 61 people of witchcraft. About 15 of those actually were executed. So she was, in my opinion, the ultimate bad girl during the witch trials. Why did she do it? she actually, she would have dreams. So she would dream of Rebecca Nurse being an, a witch, studying the devil's book. And, you know, she may have been, because I, I identify as a clairvoyant, and she may have been, had some abilities, but those those abilities were completely misused and used to accuse innocent people. Like, for example, like Giles Corey, she actually came up with the idea to press him to death. She had a dream of him being pressed and told her father, uh, Thomas, and Thomas told the magistrates, and that ended up being uh, the way Giles Corey was executed. So, like, my cousin, Ann Putnam Jr., was actually the mastermind of a lot of the, the horrific things that happened. And imagine a 12-year-old girl coming up with, you know, with ways to kill somebody or to torture somebody. That's exactly what happened. It's amazing. It's also amazing we covered a half hour and we didn't bring up Corwin one time. So, <laughs> oh, uh, the, the, Yeah, George Corwin, the sheriff. <laughs> It's hard to believe we could go that far in a Salem conversation and not even get mentioned, but that just shows how much went on there. So- I, I think that Sheriff George Corwin got a got he was a bad guy and got the got a bum rap, but I really think that we've overlooked people like the Putnams and like Reverend Samuel Paris and have demonized people like Cotton Mather and, and George Corwin. Because George Corwin actually was buried beneath the, the Joshua Ward house, which I forgot to mention earlier. But yeah, so he should have been brought up, but there's so many other players that should be talked about too. Sam, I want to say congratulations on the uh, producer gig with The Haunting. I know you were excited about that and uh, I, I'm happy for you. How can everybody keep up with anything that Sam Baltrusis, as far as any new books you got coming out or any uh, television shows you might be working on? So, Jerry, my website, sambaltrusis.com, has all my upcoming events. I have the Gettysburg Battlefield Bash coming up. My September and October are completely booked. I also have a cruise called the Wicked Salem Cruise coming up in November 2022, and I would love to see everybody out there. We're going to go and visit some of these haunted locations in Salem, Massachusetts, and also uh, visit Bermuda, and talk about the witch trials in Bermuda as well. So tons of events, a couple of TV shows coming up. So stay tuned. Awesome, brother. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much, Jerry. Have a great night. Sam is so much fun. You wouldn't know it because 
I had to do a lot of editing, but we had a lot of connection difficulties on that. I can't tell you how many times it'd be like he was telling a story and then it would just cut out nothing. And then he'd come back and he'd be like, did I drop out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Start over again at, <laughs> and yeah. then I had to go back and edit all that out. That happens, man. That's so, that's messed up, but it does happen a lot. So. And we tried to do video, and I got the very beginning of it video, but before we even got into the stories that was airing, it was starting to cut out, and he yeah. thought it would have been because of the video. So we ended up not doing yeah. any video, and it still really didn't help. It was well, just, it's all part of the experience. Sometimes you're just in a bad spot. Yeah. You know, but we appreciate perception. him taking the time out to come Absolutely, and do this interview because, because yeah, he's wow, what an slammed. honor. Yeah. He's slammed yeah. right now. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. So, anyways, thank you guys so much. Remember, if you want to buy tickets to any of the live events, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, and you can buy merch and stuff there to wear, and you can buy my book. And if you've already bought the book, if you haven't left a review on Amazon, if you could, I would greatly appreciate it. Yeah. And we just want to say we hope you all have a blessed week. Continued prayers for our military. And um, if anybody needs to talk about anything, blow our phone up. We don't mind a bit. We love you guys. All right. See you guys next week.